One of the greatest joys of studying in Rome is being so close to the Holy Father, Pope Francis. In fact, we might even say that he himself is the reason that so many dioceses and religious communities around the world send men to be formed for the priesthood in the eternal city, to come to know Christ under the shadow of St. Peter, always attentive and listening to what the Pope says and what he does. I remember very fondly the first time that I got the chance to see Pope Francis in person. It was a muggy and hot day in August of 2015, and we went down to the square to hear his Sunday Angelus address. Now, I'd only been studying Italian for about a month, so I wasn't really picking up much of what the Pope was putting down. But the closing words of his address were in simple enough Italian that I could understand what he meant. And because that was the only thing that I understood, I haven't forgotten it. <laughs> he told us to take a moment in silence and ask ourselves a question. Chi è Gesù per me? And as I thought about each of those words and quickly translated them in my head, I realized what he was saying. The question he wanted us to ask was this, who is Jesus for me? Who is Jesus for me? Now I'll admit, Pope Francis has said and written some incredibly profound and deep theological insights and spiritual insights as well. But on the surface, this didn't look like one of them. It's such a simple question. But as I walked out of St. Peter's Square that day, his question kept ringing in my ears, and I couldn't help but be totally perplexed by what he meant. I couldn't answer it. Truth be told, I'm not even sure that now, some three years later, that I have a satisfactory answer. Because Jesus keeps revealing himself to me in so many different ways that it's difficult to pin him down or put him into a box to give an answer to that question. Jesus is my Lord, my Savior, my King, my God, my Redeemer. But somehow all of these titles, true as they are, somehow fall short of expressing who Jesus is, and more importantly, who he is to me. So I've prayed with that question over the past three years, and I've come to learn that there is no quick and simple answer to that question. We might find one image or one title of Christ that is helpful today, and tomorrow find another. But I've realized that what is important is not so much the answer, but the question. It's not so much about arriving at a final definitive conclusion of who Christ is for me than putting it aside. What's important is that the question remains always at the front of our prayer. Lord, who are you? Who are you to me? Who am I to you? How do you want to relate to me? How do you want me to relate to you? And as we grow and change, as our lives stretch and adapt, the answers to those questions change as well. Because Christ's presence to us and his relation to us is dynamic, it's not static. To be disciples of Christ means for us to be continually asking ourselves that question, who is Jesus for me? The same was also true for the first disciples of Christ. In the gospel today, we find that this critical question of Jesus' identity is at the center of the gospel scene. 
set in the fishing village of Capernaum, where Jesus and his disciples have set up shop as their home base. From the third chapter of St. Mark's account, we hear recorded the aftermath of Jesus' first miracles. He's manifested that he works with a power that's beyond mere human strength. He's driven out demons, he's healed people, and he's said some radically challenging things. He's caused a ruckus in Capernaum, and now he's attracted the attention of the leaders of the Jewish community, the scribes. The scribes are called from Jerusalem up to this small village to investigate what's happening there. And the scribes, in their expert opinion, conclude that Jesus is possessed. But they're not the only ones who think that. Even Jesus' relatives, those closest to him, say essentially the same thing. He's out of his mind. He's possessed by Beelzebul. They shout one after the other. And this is such a crucial moment in the gospel because everyone there has to decide, has to make up their minds one way or the other about who Jesus is. Is he real or is he fake? Is he who he says he is? Or is he a liar or someone who is possessed? Jesus rebukes the scribes with a simple logical argument. If he is possessed by Satan, then why on earth would he be casting out demons? What ruler would knowingly start a civil war in his own kingdom? And certainly that was a valid question for the first century. But I don't think that any of us came to Mass here today unsure if Jesus was possessed by a demon. In fact, I wouldn't think that anyone in today's world would make that assertion. But that doesn't mean that everyone has figured out who Jesus is. Don't you hear people say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher, a good role model, a moral teacher, a visionary, an advocate for social justice and change, but nothing more? If people admit that Jesus existed but don't believe in his divinity, this is the type of characterization that they like to make. One of my favorite writers, C.S. Lewis, has what I think is the best response to that kind of characterization. He says, if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, then what do you make of the fact that he said that he is God? Either he's insane or he's a liar. And do you really want to call an insane person or a liar a good moral teacher? The argument falls short. And outside these walls, we are challenged to find new and creative ways to teach and to defend Jesus's true identity as the incarnate second person of the Trinity. And in today's world, that is difficult enough. But within these walls, we are forced with an even more challenging task. We must come to know and to love Jesus, who he is, to us and for us. Answering the question, who is Jesus, is a necessary but insufficient question for our discipleship. We must answer the Pope's question, who is Jesus for me? The scribes were stuck asking the first, who is Jesus, and they got nowhere. But those gathered around him who asked in their hearts, Lord, who are you to me? They found themselves being called disciples, and even more, friends. Now, it's not possible for me here today, or for anyone, to answer the question for you. Who is Jesus for each of you? 
That's a question and an answer that is as personal and as individualistic as each of you are individuals. But based on today's gospel, I can give you the essential key to getting to the answer to that question. The key is this, openness to the Holy Spirit. The scribes are rebuked for being closed off to the Holy Spirit, for blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. The scribes, who the highly educated men and deeply spiritual leaders, who above all should have recognized the truth of who Jesus was, they failed to see him. But it was no lack of intellectual knowledge that kept them from the truth. It was the hardness of their hearts. They were closed, insular, to the movement of God's Holy Spirit. They came from Jerusalem to Capernaum to investigate the case of this miracle worker, and they quickly tried to dispel all of the fame by saying that he's possessed. I've always thought it a bit puzzling how such smart men could come up with such an obviously bad explanation that he's possessed. Perhaps they felt that their own power and prestige was being threatened by his. But whatever the case may be, the scribes were closed off from even considering the possibility that God, the God whom they worshipped, was working through this Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't even think that he might be a prophet. Notice that Jesus' counter-argument has no effect on them. He's clearly shown that their claim is ridiculous, and yet they refuse to change their minds. They're presented with an opportunity to assent to the truth, and it slides off them like water off a duck's back. That's what it means to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, to keep our hearts hardened and impervious to his movement and blind to the truth that he wants to show us. Now, each of us has a tendency in our own way to put up barriers in our hearts, to confine the Lord to one place and not to another. To use another example from C.S. Lewis, when we invite Christ into our hearts, it's like we've invited him into our home. And he just starts opening doors. And we're okay. We're content as long as he stays in the parlor, or the living room, or the TV room, or the bedroom. But when he starts going downstairs toward the junk room, that closet where we just throw stuff, we get a little worried. But that's the only place that Jesus wants to go in the house. He wants to go to our messiness. And so being open to the Holy Spirit means inviting him in, giving him the grand tour of the house, including all of the messiness, and asking him to make some sense of it. Because it's where we are vulnerable and insecure that the Lord wants to meet us and show himself to us. The Holy Spirit, the Gospel of John tells us, leads us into all truth. He leads us to the truth about ourselves and the truth about who Jesus is and who he wants to be for each of us. My brothers and sisters, as we build that habit of being open to the Spirit, as we cultivate that friendship with Jesus, the Lord will show us the answer to our question. Jesus will reveal who he is and who he wants to be in our lives. In a practical way, at this Mass, I would invite each of you to look at the consecrated host at the elevation and just say simply, Lord, who are you to me? Be attentive to him and await his answer. Await his answer in those precious moments after receiving his body and blood. Now, the answer probably won't come quickly, but what's important is that we keep the question 
always open, and never putting up barriers around the Lord as we ask, Lord, who are you to me?